actually named after Antioch's, Antioch's wife, Laodicea, very common name. Historically, there were about seven churches or more, nine churches that were the church of Laodicea, this specific one, though we're going to see some unique things about it. This church of Laodicea was actually, the city of Laodicea was actually set upon a major crossroad. It was actually set on the trade route from the Mediterranean Sea, from Ephesus to Syria. So any trade coming from the ocean to Syria and back and forth had to go through Laodicea. So automatically that makes it a huge commerce hub. Not only huge in commerce, but huge on financing. It was an incredibly rich city. Most scholars, most theologians will say that they had more money than the current Swiss banking system today. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money when you look even at the ancient world. It had a very, very, very significant number of, of Jews living there, a very high Jewish population. Now, there were a few main things that they were known for. They were known for their wealth. Laodicea would, had become a Roman, Roman province, so much so that in 60 AD, an earthquake destroyed the entire city. And at, because of this, the standing or the stature of the church, or of the city, they were afforded an opportunity to have the city rebuilt by Rome. Laodicea, however, because they had so much resources, so many resources, so much money, they rejected, they said no to Rome, said, we got this, we'll, we'll take care of this. They were known for their wealth. They were known for the amount of money they had. They were also known for a medical school. Asclepios, I'm going to butcher that, it's all right. He was the Greek god of healing. And from his name, we get apothecary or pharmacy. There was a, a college there, a university of medicine that was world-renowned. You want to go get the best medical training or equipping? You go to Laodicea. Now, from that school or from that study, from that pharmaceutical background, they were known to have what, uh, an, an ISAV. There were many poppies that were growing in the fields around in the valley where they were at, and they would take them and they would actually process them to create this ISAV that they were known for and that people would buy all around the known world for any ailments of the eye. They were also known for black wool outer robes, black garments. The rams and the sheep of the area, they had this thick, glossy black wool. Then when they sheared them, they would be able to make these beautiful robes, these outer garments. They were one of the most expensive pieces of clothing that you could purchase at the time. So not only did they have something that was in high demand, they also had a high price on it. Not only did they have a, a, a medical answer to things, but they also had a high price on it. The, the trade route literally went through the middle of the city. There was the Ephesus Gate and the Syrian Gate. So that trade route, if you wanted to be able to make your drop-offs, make your deliveries, you had to enter and exit, and they taxed the trade routes. You're bringing something in from Ephesus, that's fine. If you want to continue on the road and not go in the wilderness around the city, you got to pay a fee at the door. All right, cool, now you can get through the city and you can go to the other side. On the eastern side of the city, there was the Syrian gate. Same thing, anything coming from Syria. They got taxed at the gate before they were allowed to cross through, to, to, to cross in. There was one component of Laodicea, historically, that was a negative aspect of it. So, there were two other main cities in the region, Hierapolis and Colossae. Colossae is where, obviously, the letter to the Colossians was written to. 
So Hierapolis, it was located about six miles north of Laodicea. And Hierapolis was home to some of the most renowned hot springs in the land. Now we're talking about modern-day Turkey, and actually today archaeologists are, are excavating the hot springs around Hierapolis and trying to use them, because it's still, they're still active, use them for geothermal energy, a renewable source of energy. So they're still active today, but they were renowned for these hot springs, six miles north. Ten miles to the east was Colossae, and they were completely the place for this beautifully crisp, cool, natural spring water. Those thermal baths via aqueducts were piped down into Colossae. So at the beginning, you have these amazing, useful thermal baths, used for healing, used for all kinds of stuff. And at the end of the aqueducts, you have Colossae with this beautifully crisp, cool, natural spring water. And right in the middle, you have Laodicea. Now think of a boiling pot. Boil your cup of tea. Ah, oh, but then you're a parent, you get busy, you get distracted. Your kids start bugging you. Come back to it 20, 25 minutes later, and that nice hot cup of tea is now lukewarm. And you're like, ew, I have to reboil it because it's gross. It's lukewarm. Likewise, you're hot. It's a, it's a hot summer day. Humid out. You just want a cold cup of water. You go to the tap, something's wrong, and you just get this lukewarm cup of water, and it just is gross. It's that tepidness of you just want nothing to do with it. That was the water at Laodicea. The Laodiceans were so rich that they actually dug underground aqueducts from Colossae back to their city that they piped the water back in so that they would have something to actually drink, something useful. So this is Laodicea, a city that was known for their wealth, for their university, for their medicine, for their black wool, for their garments. They were the known in, at that time that if you were to besiege them, you would be paid off as opposed to dealing with an attack. So you need a quick buck? Go lay siege to Laodicea. They're going to pay you off instead of going to war with you. That's what, that was their reputation. They looked at themselves and they said, we got it all under control. We don't have a need. We're good. We got this. As a picture of the city, it's a picture of the church, and that picture is what the Lord is going to talk to them and to us about today. So we are in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be going through verses 14 to 22. If you are using the Bibles that we've been handing out, the older Bibles, it's page 1090. If you're using the newer Bibles, it's page 853. Again, if you're new to using a Bible, Big numbers are the chapter, small numbers are the verse. Either use a table of contents or literally go almost all the way to the end of the Bible. You'll find Revelation. We're in the third chapter. I just want to pray once more for this as we get into it, because I really want the Lord to be able to speak through the passage and not from the passage. So let's pray. Father God, we are once again thankful to be here today. Lord, we're blessed to be able to sit in this room together. Lord, we want to honor you with our lives. So today, Father, I pray that not only would you reveal, Lord, hard truths into our lives today as we go through this, but Lord, you would also reveal to us, Lord, a, a remembrance of what is, has been done in our lives. 
We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's get into the text and we'll break it down. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So here we have the introduction. We have the Lord kind of introducing himself. He's presenting himself to the church. And it's very interesting how he presents himself. It's also very specific how he introduces himself. He presented himself first as the Amen. And that is an Old Testament title for God. Think of it as the Amen, the so be it, the it is done. Okay, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God in him, that's Jesus, are yes and amen. And kind of go back, all the promises of God in him are yes and amen to the glory of God through who? Through us. So all the promises of Jesus are yes, they happen. He promises it, it's going to happen. And as he promises us things in our life and they happen, it's to glorify God. So is that anything about us? No. Now, when we think of amen, we usually think of it as the period on the sentence, right? Period on the prayer. All right, Lord, we love you, and it's your name we pray. Amen, done, move on, prayer's over. Really, what amen is saying is, it is true, so be it. Another word is verily. Jesus would say in the, back in the, in the New Testament, verily, verily, I say unto you. Basically, what is being said is fact is truth. So he is the statement of truth. He is the so be it. Says that he is also the faithful or the true witness. Now we're going to contrast that with the Laodiceans that will be shown to be neither faithful nor true. He is the faithful and true witness. What is Jesus a witness of? He always does one thing. He's always about one thing, isn't he? He's always about the Father's business. His life is to point us to the Father. He is the greatest witness of the love of the Father that we could ever have. And he is also here presented as the beginning of the creation of God. Now, there are many groups that would actually look at this verse and say, Aha, see, Jesus was the first that was ever created. That's not what's actually being said here. It is not saying that Jesus was the first of all creation. The word here in Greek is actually arche. It's actually source or origin. It's actually teaching that Jesus is the source of all creation, not the first thing that was created. He is the beginning of creation, so he is the source of creation. He is not the beginning as in the first created thing. From him, all of creation comes. The Lord is going to tell this church the truth about its spiritual condition. And unfortunately, they're not going to believe his diagnosis. The Laodicean church, they were blind to its own need. And the sad thing is, they're unwilling to face the truth. If we want God's best for our lives... We want God's best for our church. We must be honest with God, and we must allow God to be honest with us. Honesty is the beginning of true blessing. As we admit what we are, 
as we confess our sin, and then we will receive from God all that we need. Last kind of thing I want to point out in this first verse, it says, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Very unique. Whenever the Bible translators use specific wording, it's for a specific reason. If you look at every other letter written in Revelation 2 and 3, it's to the angel of the church in Sardis, the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the angel of the church in Smyrna, in Ephesus, in Pergamos, in Thyatira. This is the only letter that is written to the church of the Laodiceans. What does that tell us? It is not the church of Christ. It's not the church of God. It's the church of the people. Now, Laodicea, if you break that down into the Greek, it actually means rule of the people. Rule of the people means they were the rulers of themselves not being led or being ruled by God. So it is the church of the Laodiceans. Not the church in Laodicea. And it's very specific and it's very unique. And this is the only church that is spoken to this way. It is showing, again, who they are looking to for their sustenance and for their abilities. Verses 15 to 17 says this, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are actually, that you are wretched, that you are miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This is what Jesus knows about this church of Laodicea. Like I told you at the beginning, not a fun church. This is one of only two churches of the seven that nothing good was said about. Nothing good is said about this church. Only condemnation. He says, I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. This would immediately impact them there because they drank lukewarm water every day. Yeah, they had the water piped back in from Colossae, but the average people, it wasn't available to everybody people of the city drank lukewarm water every single day. Now, biblically, in the Christian life, there are three temperatures. There are three types of heart. Luke 24, 32 says this. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? This is talking about a, hot, a heart that is hot or on fire for God. But I love what it says. Did our heart not burn within us when he talked with us and when he opened the scriptures? That, for me, I want that. I want my heart to burn as I read the scriptures. I want my heart to be that, with that, in, that intense love of who God is that as I'm reading his words to me, my heart is burning within me with passion. On the other end of the spectrum, Matthew 24.12 says this. And because lawlessness will abound, lawlessness is living apart from God. The love of many will grow cold. That really, again, in the Greek, the love of many, the, the love of the heart will grow cold. It's a cold heart. 
Now, when, when you're cold, you still feel it, don't you? As it gets colder around here, you get cold, you feel it. Likewise, when you get hot, you feel it. But when you're lukewarm, you're kind of in that middle point. You kind of, it's not something you're fully aware of. It just, eh, it just is. There's not an awareness to what's going on. I'm one of those guys that gets hot at the drop of a pen. I'm the weirdo that's outside when it's snowing out and we got a you know, foot out there. I'm out there in shorts and t-shirt. I don't get cold, really. I love cold weather. It makes me so happy. On the other hand, hot, wa- hot weather? Uh-uh. My wife and I, we went to Hawaii for our honeymoon, but I was smart. We got married in January. <laughs> I'm not a fan of hot. That's why it's like, why am I living in New Jersey where it's hot and humid? Yeah, because I listen to Jesus. <laughs> I, if, put me in a place where it's like 63 year-round or colder, I'm happy. Growing up in Nebraska, I was before church, or before the service I was talking, we would be able to have recess as long as it didn't get below a certain temperature. And that wind chill factor was always minus something. So it would be like minus five. Out. Yeah, go outside and play, kids. That's my, that's my cup of tea. I love that. I was, uh, equate that back to, I was, a, I was an October baby, but I was bl- born in a blizzard in Michigan in October. I've been cold since the beginning. <laughs> when you're hot, you're aware. When you're cold, you're aware. When you're in the middle, you just are. And here, Revelation 3.16, So then because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth, that lukewarm heart. Now that word vomit, that's a very hard word to read. God's going to vomit me out of his mouth? What does it mean to vomit? It means something that the body is rejecting. Something that is not good for it, so it needs to get it out. And that's very strong language. But what is that actually communicating? It's communicating a life that isn't being lived for anyone or anything. Just is. Is that healthy? No. Should that be how, should that be accepted in our own lives? No. The lukewarm Christian, the lukewarm believer is comfortable. They're complacent. And they don't realize their own need. Some of us would rather be comfortable than convicted. And there are some of us that would rather be convicted than comfortable. And here that comfort crept in. That thermostat kind of got turned down to a point where it just was pleasant. If the believer was cold, at least he would be feeling something. So what is this desire that that the Lord is talking about here? I wish that they were hot or cold. Really, God, you wish that I was cold? It brings clarity. You go to the drug addict. You go to the prostitute. You go to the murderer. You know where their heart's at. Obviously, they're in a place where they can be redeemed. But you know where their heart's at. It's it's far from the Lord at that point. You go to the zealous believer, the kind of person that you're like, oh, if I talk to this person, I know we're going to end up talking about Jesus. That person, you know where their heart's at. You know what, what they're about. What do you get in the middle? A lack of clarity. 
You, ha you have a lack of clarity of what's going on and where people are at at that point. Both that cold water from Colossae and, both, and that hot water from Hierapolis would be lukewarm by the time it got to Laodicea. And here we see a picture of indifference, of compromise. That's why I titled today's message, Independent and Indifferent. This city, this church, they were very independent. And they were kind of, eh, about it. Trying to play the middle. Too hot to be cold and too cold to be hot. And in trying to, bo to be both things, it ends up being nothing. Except with the picture of what Jesus said about them. That spewing out. The church of Laodicea it actually exemplifies empty religion. The tax collectors, the harlots, were more open to Jesus than the scribes and Pharisees. I absolutely love and hate that statement. I love that the sinners were open to their Savior. Love that. But at the same time, it breaks my heart that the theologians weren't open to the truth. Theology is one of those very difficult arenas. Very quickly, man's opinion can become the truth. There's only one truth, and that's that of Christ and nothing else. What Jesus wants to change in us as much as anything is the deceptive playing in the middle, trying to please both the world and Jesus. I wish that you are hot or cold also points to another aspect of lukewarmness. It's useless. Hot water can heal. Cold water can refresh. Lukewarm water is useless for either purpose. The lukewarm believer has enough Jesus to satisfy a craving for religion, but not enough for eternal life. They have too much of the world to be happy in Jesus, but too much of Jesus to be happy in the world. We are temporary residents of this place, aren't we? That concept actually came, became something new to me. It became more real to me when we were living in Hungary. We, would ha we had residency cards. And as long as that was active, we were legally allowed to live there. But when it expired, we either had to be renewed or we had to leave. Our time was up. We have a temporary card here. Now, everyone's expiration date might be a little bit different, but we have a temporary residence here. And for me, when I got that card, when, I, when, when we were living in Hungary, and I, and I understood that more by seeing it documented, man, Hungary is allowing me to be here for the next X amount of years. What did that do for me? That made me go, okay, I have that much time to do as much as I can. That's the time I'm being given. It is finite, just like our time here is finite. Yes, we are to be in this world, but we are not to be, we are not to be part of this world. We are to be living amongst the believers as a light to the truth. Like I said, Laodicea means rule of the people. And this church well represents a church 
that is run by the majority instead of ruled by God. A group of believers making decisions without praying? It's dangerous, isn't it? I find myself often like just in the, 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 the minutia of life and the routines of life, just getting stuff done. That's all right. I can just get this done real quick. Not a problem. It's okay. What I need to do then is take a step back and go, hey, Lord, is this what you want me to be doing right now? And is this how you want me to be doing it right now? Because I'm sure I can get it done, but is there a way I can get it done that you're seeing more instead of me? Is there a way I could be doing this, or is there a, a, a process that I could be going through that people see you and I'm not even part of the, the equation? It's taking that moment, taking that, that, that step to pause and to wait and to ask. The church itself cannot be a closed system. And guess what? I'm not talking about the church as a whole. I'm talking about the church as an individual. We can't be closed systems. John 15, 5 says this. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And here's the key. For without me, you can do everything. No, without him, without me, Jesus says, we can do nothing. In the Laodicean church, they were independent. They were self-satisfied. They were secure. They were saying, we have need of nothing. That's exactly the problem and the point. They were indifferent about their independence. They were living lives independently from God, apart from God, and they were just, eh, about it. Verses 17 and 18. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, that you are miserable, that you are poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold that is refined in fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may, may not be revealed. And anoint with your eyes the eye salve that you may see. So here's what Jesus has against this church. Now the church at Smyrna, they thought they were poor when really they were rich. The Laodiceans boasted about their riches when in reality they were poor. They had no spiritual longing. They were poor spiritually. They put their trust in material prosperity, outward luxury, and physical health. They felt truly like they had need of nothing. So much so, they rejected the help of Rome. They had no need. They were blind to their spiritual depravity. Jesus looked at their spiritual condition and said, Wow, not so good, guys. Wretched. Miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And this in itself was a huge blow to this church. They prided themselves as a city of wealth and of garment and of medicine. And Jesus is saying, you got it all wrong. What you think you have, you have nothing. 
we have here a hint as to why this church declined spiritually. They became proud of their own personal and abilities and ministry. They began to measure things by human standards as opposed to spiritual values. I'll be honest, there are times I look at my life. I look at my neighbor, oh, come on, it's getting to be, it's holiday time, right? So I look at my neighbor's house and go, oh, they got more lights. Honey, I got to go to the store, I'll be right back. We're measuring ourselves against human standard. We're measuring ourselves by that which we can see with our physical eyes. What we can understand with our physical brain, what we hear with our physical ears. And we measure ourselves based upon that. What Jesus sees in them is more important than how they see themselves. Perhaps some of the, the, the spirit of that marketplace or the business side of Laodicea crept into the church and their values have become twisted. So what's the solution? they got to pay the price to get true gold that is refined in fire. And this suggests that the church needed some persecution, needed something now, when we think of persecution, we think of some horrendous things. Think of it this way. Persecution just makes it so that you're a little less comfortable with yourself and the Lord. It doesn't have to be something huge. It could be something little. 1 Peter 1.7 says this. That the genuineness of your faith. Who in here wants genuine faith? I want genuine faith. Okay, what did you just sign up for? That's more precious than gold that perishes is tested by fire. Now who wants genuine faith? A couple hands went down. Now I'm joking. <laughs> and may be found to praise, to honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, gold. Seems kind of, you know, it's gold, right? We just read of it in the Bible. There's all kinds of precious metals and jewels. But gold. It's a very valuable thing, isn't it? How many of you would like to have a large cache of gold sitting around. That would be nice. But gold in itself is a very unique commodity. You guys understand the process? If not, I'm going to help bring some understanding. So go excavate, go mine, and you get gold ore from the earth. It doesn't come out in these beautifully polished nuggets. It comes out filled with junk. It's called dross. So you got to heat the material up, and that dross comes to the top, and you got to scrape it away. You heat it up again. More dross comes up. You scrape it away. You keep doing that. Keep heating it up more and more and more until there's no impurities left in the gold ore. And that's what you get. And when there's no impurities left, you get what? 24 karat gold, right? 24 karat gold is amazing. It's the most valuable. It's also the softest of all the gold. You can take gold. You guys know this. 24 karat gold. Rub it in your hands enough and you can mold it and shape it. Why? Because there's nothing impure in it that's keeping a rigid shape, a rigid form. Now, 12 karat gold, it's still valuable, right? It still has value, but it's stronger or it's more rigid because there's more imperfections in it. 18 karat gold, same thing. It has a higher value because there's even less imperfections, but it's still enough to keep it rigid. Now, we, as believers, we can, focus, we can look at gold in two ways. We can be more focused on the product or the process. If I'm focused on the product, as Peter says, 
that gold that is refined in fire, we will get through the refining process. If we are focused on that product, Lord, I want to be 24 karat gold. I want to have no imperfections in me. I want to be to the point where I am pure and that you can mold and shape me as you seem fit. If we focus on the product, we will get through the refining process. However, if we are so focused on that process, there will become a point where we say, I'm done, throw in the towel, time out, I'm good. Now, some of us might say I'm good at 10 carat. Some of us might say we're okay at 16 carat. Some of us might say we're okay at 20 carat. You still have value. You still have worth. You are still precious. But there is still enough imperfection and impurities within us at that point that it's still difficult to be molded and shaped by the master craftsman. I want my faith to be pure, to be molded and shaped by him as he sees fit, whenever he sees fit. But it takes the process of refinement, that, that being uncomfortable as that temperature is turned up in your life, allowing the junk to come up, allowing his Holy Spirit to scrape it away, to get to that point of refinement. So we have a choice to either be focused on the product or the process. And I can tell you this, I think every day it changes what we focus on. Oh, Lord, today I'm going for 24 carat. You wake up the next morning, I'm good with eight. It's a daily choice, though, isn't it? Nothing will make you examine your priorities faster than suffering. As soon as you get uncomfortable, man, hold on a second. What's going on around here? Something's not right. I'm feeling a little bit of a poke, and you examine everything. You're like, oh. Okay, there's a little bit of work I could be doing. There's a little bit of growth I need. There's a little bit of repentance I need to bring in. 1 Samuel 16.7 says this. Classic verse, wonderful, and it plays right in here. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Thank you, Lord. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. You could have the most on fire living for Jesus Christian out there doing everything in the church. And yet his heart could be far from the Lord. And we wouldn't know it because we judge things on human standard. But the Lord sees the heart. The Lord knows what's going on on the inside. What Jesus sees in them again is more important than how they see themselves. These people could not see themselves as they really were. Nor could they see the Lord as He stood outside the door of the church. They were so wrapped up in building their own kingdom that they had become lukewarm in their concern for a lost world. They had become blind to their own reality. So, what's the solution? A heavenly eye salve. Again, this city was known for their medicine. But the kind of medicine the church needed was not something available in the local pharmacy. The eye is one, of the most, is one of the body's most sensitive areas. And only the great physician can do any type of operating on it and make it what it ought to be. I'm not talking about our physical eye at that point. I'm talking about our spiritual perspective. He's the one that should be coming in and giving us that correction. Last three verses, four verses, 19 to 22. 
As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and I will dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what does Jesus want this church to do? He wants them to buy from him. Buy from him that gold. Buy from him that salve. The change had to begin with the church and with the church understanding their spiritual poverty. As long as we can meet the need for wealth and clothing or sight ourselves, we can never receive those things from Jesus. Now, does that mean that we, you know, stop thanking Him for things like simple meals? No. Simple provision? No. But every week or every other week when you get that paycheck and you look at it, it doesn't say Jesus Christ on uh, who it's from, does it? No, it has your place of employment on that check. But we really know who is the provider of all. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, provides. So as much as fill-in-the-blank employer is giving you that paycheck, that provision is really coming from him. So Lord, thank you. Understanding this, thank you. As much as I might be able to go to Target, Walmart, or wherever and buy a new shirt, yeah, that's all great. Lord, thank you for the ability to go and be able to get this. I've known many people in life that have had the attitude of, you know, you have a headache, oh, you here, you want Tylenol? Nope. If God wants this headache gone, he'll take it away. You're right. And what if he wants to use Tylenol to do that? It's limiting how we look at him, how we think of him, how we thank him, and what we thank him for. We must seek him and not rely on ourselves. And when we look at all that we have, understand, again, what's it say at the, the very beginning? The beginning of all creation, the source, the origin. It's not me. The very things which they prided themselves in were the exact areas that they were spiritually blind in. That makes me look at myself and go, man, Lord, where do I think I'm actually spiritually strong? we got to work on those areas. Because that means I'm not focused on those areas. That means I'm comfortable in those areas. They, we, need to learn that all of our sufficiency comes from and is in Him. Now, to be naked, it actually meant to be defeated or to be humiliated. The Laodiceans, they can go to the market. They could purchase these woolen, fine woolen garments. But that would not meet their real need. I love the contrast. They were known for these black garments. I mean, dark black garments. And what does the Lord say that He wants to do? Clothe them in white. Completely contrasting their own reality right in front of them. They needed the white garments of God's righteousness and His grace. How, do, how is that found? Well, that's found in salvation. Salvation means that Christ's righteousness or Christ's right way of living 
is imputed to us or is accounted to us. But sanctification, what's sanctification? Sanctification is a setting apart, setting apart to and from. Sanctification means that his righteousness is made part of who we are. So his right way of living is not just something we do, but it's who we become. We become righteous in his eyes through salvation. And that's something that comes from him and that only he can do, nothing about us. In verse 19, it says, as many as I love. And that word here is, that word for love is phileo. It's a deep, intense, personal affection. It's a brotherly love. And although we will face his correction, that in no way means that he does not love us deeply and desires an intimate relationship with us. So what does he say after that? He says, therefore, be zealous. That word, zestos, is the word in Greek. It's a great, strong word, zestos, to be zealous, to have passion, to have a passionate desire of him. It commands a decision about their indifference. The command is to turn towards him once again. We need to make our life following after Jesus not just a hobby or an occasional activity. It's a daily decision. It's a daily choice. Sometimes it has to be hourly. Sometimes it's got to be minute by minute. Lord, for this next 60 seconds, I'm choosing you. (laughs) I don't know what the next 60 seconds are going to bring, but right now I'm choosing you. Because life is life, and it comes at us every day. And sometimes life makes it hard every moment to say it's easy to choose God. I know it's not easy to choose Him every single second. But that comes from within. That's an issue. That's a condition of the heart. He says that He stands at the door and He knocks, asking to come in and to dine with us, sharing that warm, intimate moment. And that only happens as we respond to His knock. The promise is made to everybody, not just the church. If anyone hears my voice, anyone. The key to being able to open the door is to first hear his voice. I'd be asked all the time, how do I know know the voice of the Lord? How do I know what God sounds like in my life? Well, you know this. The people you spend majority of your time with, you know their voice is better than anyone else. Husbands, Wives, you put your spouse in a lineup of 100 people and they say your name. You'll know which one is your spouse. Why? Because there's an investment of time into that relationship that you know them and they know you. How do you know his voice? Spend time with him. Spend intentional, dedicated, purposeful time with him. How do my kids know my voice? Time. Time. My favorite things when my kids were born. Nicole would be talking and they turn their head. Why? Because for nine months they learned that voice. And as this child that knows nothing, mom talks and that head turns. Why? Because it's familiar. Because it's known. Jesus. 
Jesus wants us all in a place of fellowship with him. Everything he said up to the, to the Laodicean church up to this point must be seen in his desire for fellowship. Everything that he has said to them, all the negative, all the nasty, has been to reflect his desire of fellowship and intimacy. Verse 21 talks about the overcomers, he who overcomes. The promise here shows that we don't have to be Christians who are compromising and who are lukewarm. Guess what? If we are, we can change. We can overcome. Those who overcome the battle against indifference, against compromise, and self-reliance, they have one of the most, in my opinion, amazing rewards. They enjoy a place with the enthroned Jesus, sharing his throne. This is the worst of the seven churches, and yet they receive the greatest of the rewards. Only two churches received encouragement, and that was Smyrna and Philadelphia. Only two churches received rebuke, and that's Sardis and Laodicea. Laodicea is the worst of them all, and yet the greatest of all the promises. Showing that there is no one and nothing that is too far gone from God who can't repent and come right back and experience the fullness of His promises and of His victory. Now, in these last four verses, three quick things, and we'll wrap it up. There's three very unique statements. The first one is an explanation. It's in three in the first part of 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He still loved these lukewarm believers, even though their love for him had grown cold. He planned to chasten, that's to correct or to discipline them, as proof of his love. Any of you that have kids know that your love for your children is shown in your discipline at times. You have to discipline to show love. Because it would be so unloving to let them do whatever they want all the time. God permits churches, He permits us to go through times of trial so that we might become what He wants us to be. Refining. We have to be refined. Maybe you're experiencing that and that heat's turned up and you're like, God, what's going on? He's like, hold on. I'm removing some stuff so that you could be more pure with me. Hold on, it's going to get better. The second statement in the second part of uh, verse 19, an exhortation, therefore be zealous and repent. The church at Laodicea had to repent of their pride and humble themselves before the Lord. They had to, once again, like we, we read in uh, Luke 24, to stir up that fire, to stir up that heated heart, that hot heart once again. They had to cultivate a burning heart. And lastly, an invitation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Now, we often use these verses to lead people to Christ. But he's talking to a church. He's talking to a church here. The real application is to the believer. To the believer who is living in a way where Christ might be outside the door. The Lord was outside of the church. It was the church of the Laodiceans, not a church of the Lord. He is speaking to the individual then as and today. If any man opens that door, I'm going to come in and dine with him. And what he's talking about is the, the, the supper meal. And in Jewish culture, that dinner 
could be hours long. You would lounge around the, 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 the table of, you know, the dining table, the eating table, and you would lounge on these pillows, on these cushions, and you would sit in fellowship while you ate, and it would be hours long. Deep intimacy and fellowship and relationship would happen around that table. That is the table. That is the, the picture that he wants to come into our lives and he wants us to experience him with. Now, like I said, we're going to start at the beginning, work through and go back to the beginning. Who is speaking to this church? We were already introduced to him at the beginning. The amen. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of all creation. We know that's the Lord, but let's think about this even more. Let's go even more specific. The amen. It is finished. Where is the it is finished moment in the, in, in the New Testament? It's him on the cross, isn't it? The faithful and true witness. What is the truest witness of the love and glory of God that we can see? It is the death of his only begotten son. And from the beginning of creation, from the source of it all, all the way until he takes us home again, redemption has been the plan. Now, classically, we can sit here and look at this chapter or look at this text and say, all right, what do I need to do for God? Let me actually ask that. What can you do for God? Really? We think about that. What, what do I need to do for God? Um, asked and answered. Nothing. We can't do anything for him. He's already done it all. Philippians 1.6 says this. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is what this text is all about. It is not about what they need to do, what you need to do, what I need to do for him. It's about what he has already done for us and living in that life and living in that understanding. It is about reflecting on what he has already done and committing ourselves daily to a life that honors that. Yes, we could easily take the church of the Laodiceans and go, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? There's a singular subject in that sentence, and it's me. I don't want that to be the case anymore. I want to remember what he has done, and I want to make sure that I'm living in a way that reflects what he has done. I have not sacrificed my only son, either of them. I have not died on a cross. I have not paved the way of redemption. He has. And as he has done all that, to me, the church of the Laodiceans, it's more about remembering. That's why I love who he presents himself as. He, complete, he presents himself as the completion of the promise. And he's going to this church saying, I've already done it all. So you can continue looking at yourself or just look at me. Nothing else. Just me. And today, as we, we're going to close in worship, and again, we're going to, you know, I hope and I pray that we can boldly praise his name today. If you're not comfortable being in here, please, I'll be out in the back. I'll show you to another room where you can worship the Lord in your heart and in your, in, in your mind and your spirit. But we're going to boldly worship the Lord today.
Not because it's something we can do for him, but it's so that we can remember what he's done for us. To remember the sacrifice of that cross. And maybe today, he is actually outside your door knocking for the first time and you've never let him in. Maybe you're hearing his voice for the first time today. I want to come in. Will you let me in? Open that door and let him in. He will meet with you. He will be there. He is the faithful one. Let's pray and then let's worship the Lord. Father God, we are so thankful, Jesus, that you, Lord, you are the fulfillment of the promise. You, you, Lord, are the one that has completed everything. You are the one, Lord, that we desire to love, to live for, to honor. Lord, we are so thankful for the sacrifice of your life. God, we are so thankful for the, the sacrifice of your son. And Lord, we know that there's nothing we can do about that. We can do for that. It's already been done. You've said that. It's finished. So Lord, today, Lord, two things. I pray, Lord, that if, if this passage was convicting to anyone in this room, praise the Lord. <laughs> that means your spirit is alive and well, and that means that hearts are being pricked by you and listening to you. Praise the Lord for conviction. But Lord, I also pray that today would be a, a moment, Lord, that we can sit and we can actually consider what you've already done for us. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for all that you're going to do. And Lord, today we desire to worship you and to praise your holy name, remembering that which you have done. We love you, Father, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.